You got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. Pulse Welcome to, to industry. Electric People. We have Dave Madsen on the show. Check out Tim Ballard. Jeff Curl. Sheckler. Kenzie Watts. The League presents Electric People. Hey, what's up, fam? On today's episode, you're going to hear from Hannah Soar. She is an Olympian. She is a mogul skier and was just over in China in the 2022 Olympics. You are going to learn really, really quickly that Olympians aren't uh, born or just like happen. They are made. Just the commitment to excellence required to become an Olympian is just insane. And as you guys listen to this, I want you to really think about the things that you're doing in your personal life that set you up for success because she's going to clearly show you how to go from good to great, especially with all those just little details that are required to become excellent. Hope you guys enjoy uh, Hannah Soar, Olympian. How'd you do in the Olympics this time? You took seventh, right? Yeah, I did, took seventh. I was like pretty happy with it, honestly. I skied a good run and there's obviously things that you can do to improve always like should I have skied faster yeah of course but I didn't ski like a total snail and um, stuff like that so I was really happy and it was really cool to see like my teammate Jalen who's one of my best friends and she's my roommate at the Olympics and she took home a silver so I still got to sleep next to a silver medal one night so like, I'll take that <laughs> that's pretty cool I mean how many people can say that exactly yeah. it's pretty heavy Is I it? had to hold it you know I got to do all the things so yeah, and she doesn't. I got she, to do all the things. Basically, <laughs> I won. Like the medal was yeah, mine. we won the silver. <laughs> yes. I've noticed a lot of the Olympic skiers are northeasterners. Mm -hmm. Do you think? So my theory is that they grew up skiing in really harsh conditions, harsh snow, icy snow, and when like the Utahns or Colorado skiers get in harsher conditions, they really struggle. But when people from Vermont go ski in Utah they're just like what is this fluffy soft <laughs> snow you know yeah I mean I think what makes a lot of east coasters Olympians at the end of the day is they're so used to skiing gnarly shit that when they get to uh, a World Cup course that's maybe like icy maybe it's technical maybe it's raining that day because I don't know. It's a random day in Sweden and, and it decided to rain. It's not cold enough to snow. Yeah. And you're kind of like used to that. It doesn't throw you off as much. If anything, sometimes I find comfort in it because I know that maybe I'm more prepared than, yeah. um, you know, my counterpart that grew up on the West Coast and never skied a single day in the rain. Right. Meanwhile, I have a whole rain ensemble of rubber <laughs> and dish gloves and then my overcoat. So right. like, I know how to prepare, you know, in my ski G. I think I'm ready. Right. So I think that there's an element of that to it where like um, there's a lot of people who grow up on the West Coast that are, uh, you know, like sunny day skiers. Right. Like why ski when it's not good weather? Because most days it's great. Yep. So I think that that's a total element to it. It seems like Killington. I moved out to Boston, the Boston area about 10 years ago. And when I started skiing up here, I noticed that there was still this really tight mogul community. Talk to me about the community up here and growing up here and just like being raised by this village of mogul skiers. Yeah, the community here at Killington's like so unique in that sense where like as a kid, like people ask me like, how'd you get into mogul skiing? And it's like, well, the better question would have been to people who didn't become mogul skiers, how didn't you get into mogul yeah. skiing? Like I just grew up in the parking lot over at Bear Mountain here. 
and you know my dad and all of his friends you know Dave Friendell as you know yep. um would just be skiing the bumps on outer limits all day every day um we have amazing spring skiing here which always brings out the best in everyone as far as mogul skiing goes mm -hmm. with the soft bumps and good vibes and tie-dyes and Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge. And we used to have this event called Sunshine Daydream and we just make tie-dyes all day here and um, live music. So Killington really embraces that mogul skiing culture of like just kind of the free spirit of yeah. it. And there's a lot of like, as you said, like older mogul skiers from back in the day that still just love it and have this passion. And so for younger kids like me growing up, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, like they're having a great time. Like yeah. I want to do that too. And I would just follow behind these people <laughs> like Dave, for example, yeah. and you know, my dad and his friends. And that's kind of how I learned to mogul ski. Um, and then I entered into the Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge and the rest was history. <laughs> and I think a lot of people can relate to that here. Um, but it's just amazing because even though now I spend a lot of time in Utah, I've spent the last six summers there, like I still always come back here because this community is just so unique. And like for me, skiing half of it is just social. Like right. I love just skiing with people and being outside and talking and just having a common interest over over mogul skiing and just being out here even in the rain. So Hannah, like there's a lot of really good skiers out there, but it's a whole different level to become an Olympian. So we have a lot of our sales force. There's a lot of really good salespeople. And then we have like our entirely different top echelon of sales guys, yeah. right? And so a lot of our good salespeople, they always are asking like, how do I get to that next level? You know, mm -hmm. like what's the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest difference that I always noticed as a kid was like someone who was like really passionate about it. And then the people that were just kind of like doing it to do it. Like yeah. there was kind of a difference there. And I'd say even the people that maybe weren't as like naturally skilled or talented at it in the beginning, but had such a passion and just like love for the sport and they just worked so hard. Those were the ones in the end who ended up having more success. Mm. Um, you know, and obviously it's great if you can combine just like natural skill and talent into that formula. Yeah. Um, but I was just so lucky. Like I grew up skiing here with a group of kids my age um, who just loved it. Like we just skied, we'd train all day. And then when we were done training at like three o'clock, we'd go free ski together from three to four. And we were just out there because like we loved it. We weren't like, oh, this is gonna make us Olympic champions. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in the end, I thought that really showed how much passion comes into play with that kind of stuff. Cause four of us um, in our little, in our graduating classes of 2017 and 2018 at Killington Mountain School, um, ended up skiing in World Cups, which is a pretty unheard of So number. four girls from Killington. No, me and three other guys. Okay. But also, if you go to our ski club when I was a kid, um, here at the Killington Ski Club, when I was probably like in the ages of eight through 12, um, we have the four that I just mentioned, including myself, plus two, plus three other girls mm. that skied World Cup. And one of those girls went to the Olympics with me, Olivia Giaccio. So like that's like unprecedented numbers of success. And I just totally relate that to um, us having so much fun as kids and following through with that when we were older. And um, even now, like I free ski, I've been free skiing the past two weeks here, just having fun, like not training. Mm. Um, and I'm just here because I love this community and I love skiing. Right. And at the end of the day, I think that's what really got me there. Ob obviously combined with like hard work, dedication yeah. in the gym, um, you know, and dedicating my whole life around it, but in a really positive way. Like I needed to incorporate more cardio into my workouts mm. because 
obviously like even though we're sprinting for 30 seconds on a duels day we're skiing like maybe 10 runs in a day like that's a lot of both like anaerobic and aerobic capacity that needs to be pretty high yeah um so i was like oh like i need to find something fun to do to train in the off season that will incorporate that so i started gravel biking and now i love that and mm. i got my parents into it and my friends so i have a really cool group that i get to go with and it's kind of like skiing on the weekends we go for big gravel rides yeah. and it's super fun but it's it's training and it's purposeful but it also like brings me joy which i think helps with like the longevity of it all and why yeah. i'm not burned out we talk about all the time with our sales guys um they need to live a life they're excited about right and so if just working gets you really excited every day that's fine but if you're someone who is a workaholic and you find I think sometimes all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, I'm not enjoying this. Like I'm making great money. Yeah. I'm doing really well at the job. I'm a top performer, but I don't love my life. That's when, you know, we say, well, like what hobbies are you doing? What are some things you're doing outside of work that get you really excited for so that the work becomes more purposeful Yeah. and that you're working so that you can do some of these other cool things that you're doing outside of work, you know? So mm -hmm. it sounds like you kind of found that with mountain yeah. biking and some of the other stuff that you do. It's like a little bit more like lifestyle element to it where you're like, okay, I love what I do and I also love the lifestyle that it brings me. Mm. Um, like another great thing about like being on World Cup and getting to travel the world is we get to see all these cool places, you know, both skiing and not skiing, right? Cause like we're traveling every weekend to a different country, you know, we go like Europe. So we'll hit like Sweden and Norway and France and Switzerland. And then, you know, Kazakhstan and Russia and Japan. Your and passport we, must be crazy. The passport is stamped. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like we do that every weekend, but usually we fly into these major cities. So like I've been lucky enough to see like, uh, you know, Beijing and Oslo and Stockholm and Paris and Tokyo and all these places, um, you know, and maybe it's only for a day and you just cram everything you can in. Yeah. But um, you get to see parts of the world that I would never get to go to, like Siberia. Probably wouldn't have gone on vacation there or Kazakhstan. Right. Um, but now I have and I got to see like cool different cultures that I might not have gotten mm. to do. So I like to keep that in mind too, that like being on World Cup, going to the Olympics brings me a whole lifestyle that I really enjoy too. Yeah. We had um, Apollo Ono, a famous Winter Olympian from like the early 2000s, yeah. right? Speed skater. We had him on and he talked about um, where he, some of the things where he thought he was like working hard when he got to the Olympic level, just the intensity of training, the different um, like tools that you have to train. What are some things where once you got on the Olympic ski team that you were like, wow, I thought I worked really, really hard or I thought I knew what I was doing. There's a whole different level to this thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I'd say like my biggest thing was I slowly started training like year round. Mm. And so like before you might be like, oh my God, like I skied a hundred days this year. Like that's a lot. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of time on the course. Where now like I ski basically every month of the year. I have no idea how many days I ski, but like a tremendous amount, you right. know, probably like 200 plus. 250 and like, yeah, probably around 250. Like it's a lot. Obviously COVID kind of threw some variables at mm -hmm. us for sure with not being able to travel as much, um, especially in the summertime places like Chile and Australia. Uh, but I just realized like the amount of time and intensity on the course and purposeful intensity was at a whole nother level. Like for me, I used to just ski the course and mm -hmm. I was like pretty naturally talented as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I would just 
kind of do it off natural talent. I wouldn't be thinking too much. And now every run has so much focus and so much intensity and so much mindfulness that I can only do like maximum six runs on a course that day before I start getting worse. Like, yeah, I can keep going. Yeah, there's I diminishing keep, returns. Exactly, yeah. diminishing returns. I can keep going through the motions, but I'm not getting better anymore. See, our a lot of our sales guys, so they go door to door. They go out, they go into a neighborhood, and then they just start knocking on doors mm -hmm. and they're selling solar panels, right? And I think a lot of our guys go out and they just kind of go through the motions. Like they don't, they don't do it with purpose where they're going with a game plan, like a specific, whatever they're trying to achieve that day, right? And it doesn't yeah. have to be necessarily getting a sale, just getting better at this part of the sales pitch or yeah. overcoming certain objections, right? So I think um, it sounds like that's kind of a huge difference for you is going into your training with a lot more purpose. It's like, I would compare it to be going to less, you're doing less door to door, but each door to door you do is better. Right, really, yeah. really focused. Yeah, more uh, quality over quantity. Right, something that we will encourage our sales guys to do is record their door pitches or even record themselves like just talking in the house, rehearsing their door pitches and whatever and then play it back and a lot of times when they just listen to it back they can even self-analyze and like hear the ums and the filler words and just like it when they're talking it doesn't make sense whatever right do you do a lot of that kind of film analysis with your skiing and your practice I know obviously all your competitions are filmed but like walk us through a training session yeah so we're basically uh, filming every run basically obviously with like the outdoors and all of the different elements some days filming doesn't really work out whether it's because it's foggy the camera can't handle it because it's negative 20 degrees outside but for the most part we like to film and do video review right on course mm. so my coaches have a nice little setup on the display we go through it we analyze it, we slow-mo it, we decide what we're gonna work on on the next run. Because obviously there's so many things you could do better at. Yep. But you kind of zone in for the day on what you're gonna specifically try to work on. Look for that in the video, see if you did it better, see if you did it worse, what can you do for the next run. Okay. And then we do that, and then usually we have an overall video session still at the end of the day, or before training the next day, where we look at all the runs kind of together. Yeah. We see which ones we like the best. And also, what can we what can we change about them? So, lots of video reviews done. What what's something that you're working on right now? Well, now that the Olympics are over, we're working on some very specific things for the games. We knew it was going to be a very steep and firm course mm -hmm. that was going to be potentially icy. Yep. It didn't end up being too icy, just really firm and dry snow. Yep. So we were working a lot on crushing our boots, which is like when you're just really flexing, your shins are fully connected to your. Um, so the steeper, the steeper the mountain, the, the more you're leaning into the steepness, basically. Yeah, the more important it is to keep constant pressure. So like what a lot of people do is they might, they might be able to get to their toes and flex their boots, but they might also unweight in between each turn. Yep. But we just want to be in our boots the entire way down that course. And then that's going to help us get on edge because the firmer and icier wow. any skiing is, the more important it is to be on edge. And I used to always joke with my coach. I'd be like, I'm a mogul skier. I'm just trying to ski it straight. And he's like, uh, no, you're not. You're actually on your edges. Um, so I've been working on that a lot this past year. It's like, what does it feel like to be in the moguls and on edge? Okay. 
and you can't be on edge if you're in the back seat. So that's kind of why you really need to be flexing your boots and the icier and the firmer of course gets, the more every time you bobble or just kind of mess up a little bit, it's gonna be way harder to recover because that, that snow is just so firm and icy. You've had competitions where you've crashed. You've had competitions where you thought, you know, you probably were gonna medal or like podium or, and then you didn't. How do you overcome that mental just trials of like failing when, especially when you went into it, something so confident? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. I think, I think the first thing with being competitive, right? It's easy to be a good winner. It's hard to be a good loser. Yeah. It's easy when you lose at something or have a bad day to just be like, screw this, I'm over it. I don't even care, you know? Yeah. Like that's, I feel like a very much of a human initial instinct, which is totally normal and okay. But you just want to hope that over time you get better at coping with losing and mm -hmm. how do you become more of a winner and less of a loser? And I think um, the biggest thing that I learned was like every time that I, not, I don't even want to say every time I lose at something, but every time I finish an event or a training day, I look back at that day and I say, what did I do well today? And what did I, what do I need to work on from today? Okay. And I do that even if I podiumed at the World Cup that day, I still do that same plan because then it makes it less, I don't know, it makes it less winning and losing, right? It's just like every day, this is what I do. No matter how it goes, I look at what did I do well and what do I want to work on? Because even if you won a World Cup, there's still things to work on. And I think similar for you guys going door to door, like even if you did get that sale, there's probably something that you could have done slightly better. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, like always having a formula that isn't dependent on how well that day went or what the outcome is, was really helpful for me to get out of that kind of loser's attitude of like, screw this, I don't like it. So what's your formula for it? Just looking at every day after training and saying, hey, I really liked how I approached training today because of this. Um, and because of that, I did this really well, but I didn't do this as great. Well, how do I improve upon that? So it's almost like even if you have a great day, it's not that you're never satisfied, but you're just, you, you keep the perspective of no matter how good the day was, there's always something to work on. Yeah. And if you have a bad day, cool. There's always something to work on. Totally. It's not, it's not like, Hey, I had a great day today and I had a bad day yesterday. It's just every single day you approach it with, there's always just something to keep working on. Yeah, and I think like what makes that different from never being satisfied is you always acknowledge something that you did well that day. Mm. Like I'm not only focusing on what I can do better, I'm also acknowledging the things that I did well because I want that to be repeatable. Right. And you also, I think a great thing that my coach and I talk about is repeatability. Okay. I think there's one, there's times where you do something one off. It was a unique situation. That's fine. It worked for that. But like, you always want to have a plan and a system for whatever you're doing that's repeatable you can do day after day and that's something that i look for and i guess you could call it a routine in yeah. a way as well but just something that i can say hey this is how i did it the day that i got my first world cup podium mm -hmm. what did i do that day that was different from all the days prior when I wasn't having as much success. And you hope that whatever that was, wasn't just a fluky random thing. Yeah. And it's something that you can recreate over and over again to keep having good days. Do your coaches have any um, kind of like mantras that they repeat to you guys constantly where they're like, hey, like keep your hands forward or hey, like keep into your, like just whatever the, and then are there any mental like mantras that they're always preaching to you guys? Yeah, I mean, my biggest one that I always hear comes from my sports psych actually. And he's like, 
don't get in your own way. Mm. And I think that goes for like all of life. Um, and obviously, especially skiing in the Olympics was more how that was coming through from him. It's like, you're going to have a great time at the Olympics and you're going to ski your best as long as you don't get in your own way, as long as you don't get in your own head and basically self-sabotage. Yeah. And I think people do that a lot in life and they blame other things when really they were fully in control of that situation mm -hmm. and could have done things differently. Um, but for whatever reason, they told themselves, I can't do something. Yeah. And you keep telling that rhetoric in your head and all of a sudden, yeah, you're going to manifest that and that shit's not going to happen. Right. And that's, that's what he kind of means. It's like, don't get in your own way. Don't purposely not do your mindfulness and meditation and start freaking out at the Olympics that it's the Olympics and you want a medal and forget your whole routine and system for success here. Right. Well, I heard um, paraphrasing one of the famous like Michael Jordan quotes is he says, people will um, subconsciously not try their hardest. So if they don't succeed, they have a built-in excuse. Totally. Right? So they purposely will like kind of self-sabotage or not try their hardest. So that way when they fail, they're like, well, if I would have tried my hardest, I would have done better. Right. If I would have tried my hardest, I would have won, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to give it everything you have and then still fail. It's really, it's a vulnerable position to be in. Yep. I don't think anyone wants to be vulnerable. So I think that that's a very classic coping mechanism. And I'd be lying if I said I've never done that before. Yeah. How, so you have a sports psychologist. Mm -hmm. How, and these are like, see, these are the, these are the details that I think top performers understand is they have all these little other systems in their life yeah. that your average performer doesn't. Like the mm -hmm. average weekend warrior mogul skier <laughs> that's skiing in the beer challenge. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't have a sports psychologist, right? And then I'm like, why didn't I do well? Yeah. You know? So, um, so what are some of the other things that your sports psychologist and you kind of work on in terms of like performance? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that we do is mindfulness. Um, and that comes through in like, obviously like meditation practice and whatnot to practice being able to focus and aim your attention. Okay. But that's my biggest thing is like aiming your attention because with mogul skiing and a lot of other things in life, right? Like there's a lot of craziness going on around you, like la 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 la. Yeah. And then all of a sudden for 30 seconds, I just need to zone in and focus. I only need to focus for 30 seconds, That's right. but it's critical that I focus on the right things and at the right time. When you're competing, and this would probably be a better conversation at the top of the gates over at the course, but, um, you, you get off the chairlift, you ski down to the, the course, and then you're in the, the tent or whatever. Like at what point do you start going through your mental preparation and just like walk us through how you prepare for something like that? Yeah, so usually at the top of the course, and I'm sure this is different for like every sport out there, but for me, I usually, once I'm 10, skiers out from when I'm going to go. Okay. That's when I start just warming up my legs, you know, doing like the classic lunges, just activating all those muscles. Yep. Um, visualizing. I do a lot of visualization up there and okay. I try to just, as I'm visualizing, I have key words and things that I'm aiming my attention at. And I'm folk, I'm basically, I'd say I'm less practicing my run yep. as I am practicing aiming my attention at what I'm going to do in that run. Okay. So I do a lot of that. And then- so Give me I'm, an example of that. So I'll usually be like using my arms and my body to like physically visualize it. And I'm picturing skiing the top section, hitting the top air, 
And usually for the top air, like let's say I'm going to do a cork seven up there, I tend what's to a, change hold on. it up. For all of our listeners, what's a cork seven? <laughs> um, it's an ac- off access 720. If you can visualize that. Okay. <laughs> so it's basically doing a backflip with a 720 in it. Yes. Like a, yeah. So basically a 720, if you toss it on access, um, what, what access that is, I'm not totally sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm an economics major, not, <laughs> not like science and physics and math. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so we'll do a cork seven and you know, a lot of the times like you're struggling with something on a given course. And I know what that something is because I have had two days of training on that course mm. already. Um, so like at the Olympics, for example, I was thinking about being on my toes going into the top air and really flexing my boots like I mentioned before and pressing my right arm into the sky in order to hit my extension Mm. because sometimes on top airs I like to just get into that trick really early get it over with um, because you're landing into a field of moguls and that can be slightly terrifying from time to time so I was really visualizing pressing my right arm into the air and getting hitting my full extension so I'm thinking about that as I'm visualizing I'm picturing landing in this field of moguls uh, and then, like I said before, at the Olympics, thinking about a lot of edging, a lot of crushing of the boots. And then for the bottom arrows, doing a back truck, which is a backflip when you grab both tips of your skis. And so with that one, also just thinking about looking out into the crowd for as long as possible, seeing my skis as I grab them, then pulling it over. It's hard, too, because if you're doing um, maneuvers like a back full that I also do, that I only do that on the top air. That's a very, like, gymnastics-y trick where you... It's like a 720 cork seven, yep. but your legs are locked out and you're flipping over the top. Yep. So like hopefully your feet get above your head at some point. Okay. Where with a cork seven, your feet um, are kind of off to the your side. Your feet are more off to the side. Yeah. Right. You don't want to go over your head for that access. Um, and so with those tricks, it's really hard because you're both flipping and twisting. So you got to stop those both simultaneously at the right time in the right place in order to not continue and over rotate and land perfectly into the moguls. So there's a lot that goes into all of that too. Um, so like I used to compete, for example, like a back full to a cork seven sometimes, but that's really tough for me mentally because there's so much going on within just the jumping aspect okay. of it all. But 60% of your score is how well you skied the course and 20% is how fast you are doing it. So only, so 20%, only 20% is the jump. Exactly. So for me to focus that much of my attention because it takes up that much of my brain capacity to do that yeah. at the, at my best level. It almost took away too much from 80% of the score. I see. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that the beer challenge. On... <laughs> I love that you call it the beer challenge because that that's what, what it is. Is that what it is? <laughs> it's the Bear Mountain Mogul <laughs> bear, Challenge, but it is the beer, the beer challenge. The Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge. All right. So what I'm hearing is that the Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge, which I'm competing in, as a 43. Ski fast. Ski, okay. Ski fast. So I'm going to be judged on speed, my turns, and the errors. Yes. 60-20-20. Speed. Yeah. 60% speed. Yeah. Uh, 20% speed. 20% speed. So 20% speed jumps. Form. Yeah. So 60% form, 20% jump, 20% speed. Yes. Got it. Okay. I feel like I'm good on the speed and the form. The jumps are the scary part, which I'm going to save. <laughs> Just roll over them and keep going. That's speed, kind of what I'm going to do like a spread eagle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can do the same trick twice in the bear mount, in the beer challenge. Okay. So just do spread to spread and skeet as fast as you can. So something I wanted to add, we're, we're standing at the top of, um, Andrew will get a shot of this, but we're standing at the top of a world-class mogul course, right? Mogul course can- The mogul course I grew up on. The mogul course you grew up on. And it's, 
A mogul course consists of, how long is the course, do you know? Um, usually a mogul course is anywhere between like 220 and 250 meters. Okay, and there's two massive jumps. Yep. Um, so I competed just casually in high school and the very last time I competed, I had a big crash and it's like always in my head. Even when I go off jumps today, it's yeah. always in my head. And with sales, with door-to-door -door sales specifically, anxiety is a huge part of the job. You're driving out to your area, you get to your area, and you know the first thing you have to do is get out of your car, which sounds easy enough, but it's actually pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Because in your head, you're sitting there thinking like, man, I'm about to go get rejected all day. Like, I right. hope I get a sale today. I hope people are home. Like there's just all these things, right? Yeah. And especially a lot of our newer sales reps, they really struggle with the anxiety part of the job and like learning how to cope with it. So coming back to the crash, I know you've had several pretty gnarly crashes going down the moguls and going off these big jumps. What do you do to be able to get over that fear and or do you just are you just like missing that chip in your brain like Alex Honnold? You know, have you ever have you ever watched that? Yeah. Have you ever watched that um, the free solo? Yeah, and he's just like, yeah, I have watched that. Very unrelatable. And they're literally like, he's missing a chip yeah. in his brain, right? It's like, are you missing that chip, or do you have to deal with anxiety? No, like I a have normal a, human. I have a lot of that chip. Uh, <laughs> no, I think as a kid, like people would tell me, well, like just don't be scared like just be confident like whatever yeah and i'm like what is that even supposed to mean because like to well, it also me, hurts to crash it hurts to crash and like what i always tell myself is i'm like it's a natural bodily instinct sorry Andrew, to say, sniffing hey i'm standing at the top of a course usually icy and i'm gonna hit a jump that's gonna land me into more icy moguls like yeah it's totally fine it's totally natural to be nervous about falling and hurting yourself because yeah, that's a real possibility. Um, and kind of the same with you guys. Like, yeah, like getting out of your car and going to knock on the first door, being rejected is a real possibility. So I think like saying to yourself, oh, just get over it. Don't acknowledge it. Don't be nervous is just like stupid. And it's, it's a not waste a, of your time. It's not a realistic way to tell no. someone how to deal with it. Exactly. So like for me, like what I've been working on with my sports psych and, um, Ever since I've been working on it, I've I had I got World Cup podiums literally six months later, and I had none prior. Okay. And it was basically because he told me like, all you have to do is acknowledge that fear of whatever you're dealing with in that moment, and then aim your attention at what you can do to have your best result. Mm. So like for me skiing, it's saying it's me standing here looking at this course, being like, oh, I'd really not like to do my ACL today. Like right. <laughs> I'd really like. Like before the Olympics, like I'd really like to not get injured so that I can go to the Olympics. Like that's real. That's a real fear that I had. Yeah. And so I'd have to acknowledge that thought in my head and then aim my attention at what I was going to do to not do my ACL. So that's like, okay. On have you, have you torn your ACL before? <laughs> no, my dad's had 10 knee surgeries. Everyone on the team. So it's just in ACL. your head. It's, it's just in your head. It's all around you at all times. And it takes you out for a whole year. Right. It sucks. And it's a it's a very common injury in moguls. Yeah, exactly. Very quad dominant sport. We have baby hamstrings. They don't protect your knees when you have baby hamstrings. It's a whole thing. But anyways, I'll uh, aim my attention at like, okay, I'm going to be on my downhill ski. Or when I'm jumping, being like, this is what I'm going to do to hit a really nice takeoff 
so that I land in the best position possible to not get hurt. And mm. so like that's what I aim my attention at. So like for you guys, it would be like aiming your attention at like what your plan is for your pitch that day. Like what am I gonna focus on in order to give myself the best possibility for success? And like the thing about this process is you might go through this rigmarole and then give it 30 seconds and the thought about getting hurt again might pop right back into your head. And that's totally okay. You just go through the same process over and over and over again. And like, obviously it happens a lot at the top of the course, but I used to get so nervous before competitions and I'd have to go through the same process. You know, the night before I'd be like, oh, I hope I don't fall tomorrow. <laughs> like, I hope I do well. Mm. And so I'd have to go through this whole thing again. And like this whole thing maybe takes 30 seconds, right? but you feel like you're doing it over and over again, but slowly you get better at it because you're training your brain to think in that process. Yeah. And then it becomes easier and easier and easier. And then all of a sudden you hope it becomes a little bit of second nature to do. Makes sense. So a lot of our guys, they'll go through that exact same process when they're in a car, they have sort of this mental system they go through, they get out of the car. And I think a lot of our best reps, the system they have is drive into a neighborhood and literally not think about a single thing. Just put the car in park, get out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the easiest way to do it. But then they still have those moments of anxiety, just walking up to the first doorstep or when they hear someone coming down the stairs or they mm -hmm. hear the door opening, it's like, it all hits you in a wave again. Totally. So it's really relatable. I think, um, so you're having those thoughts and man, it just seems so overwhelming to think I've trained my whole life to get to the Olympics. I'm in this World Cup final or whatever. That's my final qualifying meet to get on the team or yeah. whatever it is. Like, how do you not let that anxiety just overtake you? I think for me, like the reason why it doesn't over, and I say why it doesn't overtake me, but like, let's be honest, it totally overtakes you in moments. Right. But I think in a general sense, like, balance like what we were talking about a bit before like I have balance in my life you know like I'm pursuing college as well getting a degree in economics there um, my ski community here is obviously like very invested within me having success within competitive mogul skiing but bigger than that they just want me to be here skiing mm. like they obviously were so excited to get to watch the Olympics and have me in it and be so invested in the whole process but if I didn't make the Olympics and I came back here to ski outer limits we'd still be having a great time. I have right. a community that's not just saying, oh, we're only friends with her. We only support her when she does well. They support me because I'm the person I am and a friend within the community. Right. And so I have that as well. And obviously there's other things I want to do besides mogul skiing. Like, you know, I do want to have um, a job someday that I'm passionate about in a career and like working with my sponsors and my partners and doing cool things like that. So I try to remember like, even if I hadn't made this Olympic team, even if I hadn't gotten any World Cup podiums in my whole career or even made World Cup or made the US ski team, like just remembering like it's all about the process involved and you know, you're not, don't define yourself just by your, your results. Mm. Like, you know, like you can still find happiness in the little moments because even when you, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but maybe even when you do get a sale, like you said, like you're only as good as your last sale and like that moment of happiness when I podium in a World Cup or make top three last year in the overall World Cup and you get the whole bib, the bronze bib and it's a whole thing and it's very fun, but it's only for 
a fleeting moment in right. time, you know? And then you're back to the grind. And so, nobody cares two weeks later. Exactly. Yep. So you need to enjoy the grind because if you're only in it for those moments of success, they're so short-lived and fleeting and no one's going to remember them. I love that. And it's the same thing with rejection. I always tell people, I'm like, no one's going to remember that you just got 15th today in the World Cup and you didn't ski well. Like, no one's going to remember that. Yeah. You, you might remember that or maybe you won't but like it's kind of keeping that all in mind and keeping like a perspective on it all that like the rejection doesn't need to be the lowest moment of your life and also the win doesn't need to be the biggest moment of your life like I always say like I always tell my teammates like I like to ride the wave and just ride the wave <laughs> like you know ride yeah. the highs ride the lows and just not hit your peaks because something that we deal with as athletes is um you know, like honestly, a lot of depression after the Olympics, a lot of people feel. And because you just hit this amazing high, especially if you win something like an Olympic medal. And then all of a sudden, like you said, two weeks later, you just come crashing down. Because yeah. it's like, it's honestly like probably doing drugs. Like you hit a high and then you're probably going to hit a low because you need to come down from it. Yeah. And a lot of people deal with that. Um, and it's a really hard thing for people to talk about because at the same time you should be very excited about all the success you did something that people dream about doing and might never even get close to mm. and so therefore like you should just be grateful for that experience and it's hard because it's not that you're not grateful for that experience or those moments but it's just hard to deal with what's next and so for me like I always like to keep it all in perspective and and not get too too up or too low at any time because it's just hard to ride that as an athlete for years and years and that's how you burn out well i think it would have been really easy for you to go to the olympics come home and then not ski for a month right you know <laughs> but it's like i saw on your instagram like you came home and the first day you were home you came right back out here and you were skiing moguls again right you know and you're skiing with your friends again and you're just getting back into it and i think the correlation with sales is a lot of times our guys will even have great days. They'll have a day they sell two or three homes and then they, the, the temptation is to then the next three days just take off yeah. because they're like, man, I worked so hard. I had to deal with all this rejection that I finally got some sales and now I can just coast for a couple days, you know, mm -hmm. but the top sales guys, even when they have a great day, they wake up and they treat the very next day the exact same and they just get out and then they are still on the doors by two o'clock or 11 a.m. or whatever it is and they go they work the same exact hours and they pretend the day before didn't even happen well that's the concept of having a process and a routine and not riding too high too much of a high and too much of a low is you just kind of doing your routine day after day acknowledging the wins acknowledging the losses like we talked about before and learning from them, but just kind of continuing on, mm. you know? And like like you said, like not taking three days off after a win or a big loss, you know? Cause that's another thing is like, when people are in such of a low and maybe they haven't had the results that they've wanted for, for months on end and they just want to quit and be done and, and take time off. And like, there are moments where that might be the best thing to do, but it's not, it shouldn't be your first instinct to just yeah. say, uh, I'm over it. Right. Who do we hate on the, in your, you know, like, do we hate the, who do we hate, do we hate the, I mean, do we hate the, do we hate the Chinese? Do we hate the, do we hate the Swedish girls? Like, who do we hate? Who are the girls that you get up to the top and you see them and you're like, oh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to smoke you This is going to sound like the worst thing ever, <laughs> but honestly, like our community is like very loving. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, it sounds so corny, but like. We're all very friendly, and I think in our, I think any sport that you deal a lot with injury, yeah, it actually brings people 
within a team and within different countries together because everyone feels when someone does their knee right. or is out for a while because they got concussed. You know, like whatever that is, you can feel for that person because you can relate. And you're kind of rooting for them when they come back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're rooting for them when you come back. You've been there and you've done that before as well. Usually at some point in your career, you're going to relate to that. Um, so we don't hate the, we, we don't, don't really hate the Germans. Hate everyone. I mean, and I think it's funny because we have different relationships with different girls on other teams, but like within our team, we have a really strong connection. They're like my closest friends in life, yeah. which made it hard for the Olympics, right? Because we're all, we're doing so well this season. Some people weren't going to be able to go. So that was really tough. And then like other countries, it's funny because not everyone speaks English, yeah. but like the Kazakhstan girls, like we love them. They don't speak a lick of English, but, they're but fun. yeah, we have a connection with them. Yeah. Um, That's you know, so and funny. this kind of stuff like that. I mean, the, the Russians, we don't really talk to, um, like there's some, some teams that like, so I don't like them. I just don't really. You don't like, you don't throw like little ski signs at the girl, the Russians. <laughs> no. Like and we gang, have a, little ski gang signs. But like we have this guy, um, Akuma Horishima. He's a Japanese mogul skier mm -hmm. and he's awesome. Like he's like probably the, my favorite person on the planet. And, um, like he came over and trained with us for the month of June, like our U.S. ski team. And he's ranked second in the world and he skis for team Japan. And we were going into an Olympic year. Yet he flew over to come see with you guys. Yeah, stay That's with awesome. one of my teammates and train with us. So like that kind of goes to show what the mogul skiing community is all about. Yeah. And that was a very unique situation for sure, because I was like, I definitely was even taken aback. Like we all love Coombs. We were definitely like, this is the Olympic year. Like, should we really? Yeah, be we're competing. Yeah. Well, it just so it's the camaraderie made it better. I would say it's very similar because um, door to door is a hard job, and anyone that has sold for a period of time, even six months or a year they understand how hard it can be and how especially mentally challenging it can be. So I feel like we actually have a similar community where a lot of our people are really rooting for each other. And even though we do our best to create competition and, and sales incentives and things like that where people are kind of beating each other, it's all, the, at the end of the day, we're all rooting for each other. Totally, That's and funny. I think like for me, like my dad instilled this in me at a young age. He's like, competition is doing your best out there and hoping that all the other competitors do, do their, their best. best. That's and right. you're just hoping that your best is a little bit better than their best. That's that right. Day. Yep. And it's not wanting to beat someone because they're down in the dumps and you're like stepping on them. Yeah. You, you don't know? yeah, you don't wanna you don't wanna blow out someone else's candle to make yours brighter. Right. right? Exactly. And so it's and, and we always say like all of our friends, we're all rooting to win together. Um, but it's okay to also, you know, what you're hoping for is they all did their best and then your best was a little bit better. Exactly. You know? So I think that's where the competitiveness comes out. Hey, it's been awesome having you on uh, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> the podcast. So what's next? Are you training for the 26 Olympics? Like, are you already have your eyes on four years from now? That's definitely the biggest question that I get. I don't know. I mean, we head to Italy tomorrow to finish off the World Cup tour in Italy and France and then nationals at Palisades Tahoe, um, which is always a fun event to ski with the kids. Um, and as far as 2026 goes, I haven't quite decided. Uh, after the Olympics, there's usually like a big sigh of relief and kind of, you look at a lot of, um, you know, you look at the season in a quad sense, where you're like, am I gonna ski for four more years? Or am I gonna ski for none? But I decided like for me, like I'm gonna ski one more year and just decide this summer, like, do I have it in me to go for another four? Because to think that you're just gonna 
ski four more years and end up at the next Olympics yeah. is just naive. Right. Um, it's going to take still a lot of dedication to getting better every day. And like we said, it's a lot of focus, it's a lot of time, it's yeah. a lot of energy to be the best in the world. So I just need to decide, like, do I have what it takes to go for four more years? And in this other side of things, like, is that what I want to do? Right. At the end of the next Olympics, I'd be 26, turning 27. And, um, you know, I just need to decide, like, do I want to be 27 and going into, like, my first job in a career sense? Yeah. Um, and I don't know the answer to that yet, so we'll see. I mean, coming from someone who's been in the workforce for a while, <laughs> I would a thousand percent say, <laughs> Do the Olympics again that's, if you can, yeah. But I know it's easy. It's easy for like someone older to say it, and it's harder when you're in your shoes to like wonder. Yeah. I'm telling you, when you're 40, you'll look back and be like, I should have done the Olympics again. <laughs> that's what a lot of people tell me. It's like, I don't know. It's also a, the other part of me is like, maybe I don't compete at the Olympic level, but maybe I do something still within skiing. Like, I don't know, the Free Ride World Tour is pretty cool. Yeah. They um they give invite spots to some Olympians or high-level skiers in just different disciplines besides free ride. And, like, you're like, maybe I want to do that for a little bit. And if that was the case, I'd obviously want to get into that before 27. Right. So there's other things within the ski industry or, like, filming and other stuff like that. Mogul skiing is pretty much my passion, so I don't necessarily see myself going off to do that. But you never know. Yeah. I want to keep my doors open. That's cool. Well, hey, it's been awesome today, um, and uh, wish you all the best, and good luck in Italy. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it was thanks. so good being here. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, check us out at viventsolar.com forward slash careers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a great review and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.